Welcome to This Week in the Warner Archive Collection, where we discuss our newest releases. I'm George Feltenstein, and I'm proud to be joined by my colleagues, Matt Patterson and D.W. Ferranti. We have eight great new additions to the Warner Archive Collection on DVD this week, and Matt, Dan, and I are here to tell you all about them. First and foremost, and very much foremost, after years of waiting and apoplexy amongst a myriad of fans, we are pleased and proud to at last bring you beautifully remastered Challenge of the Gobots, the series, volume one, with 30 half-hour animated exploits of the Hanna-Barbera greats. They're transforming robots, and we'll be talking a little about the robot wars to come. Absolutely. And then we go to the 60s, where we have three really delightful feature films from MGM, two of which star Sophia Loren and one of which stars the amazing Raquel Welch. Mm -hmm. We have Lady L, where Sophia Loren co-stars with Paul Newman and Peter Ustinov who wrote and co-directed. We have More Than a Miracle, starring Miss Loren and Omar Sharif. And we have Edward G. Robinson and Robert Wagner joining Raquel Welch in the biggest bundle of them all. Last but not least, four really terrific movies that have been out of print come back into print on DVD from the Warner Archive Collection. We have The Sunshine Boys with George Burns and Walter Matthau, Pennies from Heaven with Bernadette Peters and Steve Martin, Alice Adams with Katherine Hepburn and Fred McMurray, and Summer of 42 from the team of Pakula and Mulligan. So let's get the discussion underway and talk about GoBots. Dan, was it as much of an honor to you as it was for me to go to the WonderCon and present the teeming fans just okay. to be there on yeah. stage to hear Leader One and Scooter reunite has a, made all the work we've done for the past few years worth it. Now, just a little backstory on the GoBots. The GoBots were previously released on a few VHSs. Is that correct, George? That's correct. In the many iterations of Hanna Barbarian videotapes, right? Uh, there were GoBot iterations, and we ourselves at Warner Archive remastered the miniseries that preceded the full series. And that was one of the early animated projects that we, we used that the remastering process. That was our first process. remastered project for animation, yes. And I have a great memory of coming in and seeing a side-by-side -side video comparison of the before and after and being blown away because these great transforming robot epics were Never, you know, the, the the animation process of the 1980s was a little more primitive, and by going into the original elements, scanning them in, and bringing them out, there there are colors that were almost never meant to be seen by the human eye. Maybe a robot eye. Do you think a robot eye, Dan? Well, they're not technically robots, are they, Dan? They're more like cyborgs. They are more like cyborgs. Just briefly, in the 1980s, most people, when they think of transforming Japanese robot toys turned cartoons, they think of Shogun Warriors and. I got nothing. The Transformers, Dan. Oh. Never heard of them. Because the Transformers are now and still unfolding into a multi-billion dollar franchise. But in the mid-80s, there were actually two competing toy lines, both imported from Japan by two different companies. And the GoBots actually came out a little ahead of time. The GoBots were, as a toy, a little less expensive. and. They had a different sort of take on the transforming fans because these were done by uh, the people at Hanna-Barbera. And 
they created the line of stories around it. And we got to talk to some of the story editors and the writers. We and were you, honored to share the stage with Kelly Ward and Alan Burnett. Alan Burnett, of course, wrote the was the, the story editor. Five. These were both story editors, and they would be the first to point out that they had a phalanx of writers, to use their words. But Alan Burnett was the story editor in the original five, and then Kelly Ward was the story editor for the regular and, show. And had credits for uh, 22 episodes. And when the five went... Those were successful, right? It filled out a week. Right. And then they placed an order for 60. Which was really unprecedented at the time. And this is at the kind of nexus of what was called strip syndication, which still exists today for like those judge shows and all that kind of thing. But with television being a broad diversity of channels, you don't see as much original expensive programming and creating original animation for a weekly strip syndication is something that wouldn't be done today because of the cost. But what they did was, after the miniseries went, they did 12 weeks of programming for five episodes per week. That was 60 episodes, and then they could rerun and slice and dice, yeah. and that's what they did. So we're bringing you the first 30 of the 60 episodes that consisted of this series, which only ran for one season, but has had a legion of loyal fans for Absolutely. nearly three decades. We've heard them crying for more. And just to, you know, if you're a Transformers fan, you're not a real Transformers fan until you've seen and understood the GoBots because without the GoBots and that opposition in the beginning, you know, maybe the Transformers probably wouldn't be as fondly remembered as it was today because it, it, this was a cultural storm in the 80s and, and a force to be reckoned with. It was like first the Cabbage Patch Kids, then the Transformers GoBot War. So we wanted to bring you GoBots as soon as we could, but when you're taking 30 yeah. episodes and eventually another 30 episodes and remastering, it means bringing in 30 film elements, 30 audio elements, making them look and sound their best. And that's a lot of work and it takes a lot of time, but it's been done and we're so happy that on this Three DVD sets, you get 30 episodes looking and sounding smashing with bold colors that almost burst off the screen. And I just want to point out that online, you come through probably our YouTube channel, you can find uh, a fan took a video of the panel, and it's it's up on YouTube now if you want to see us discussing the GoBots in, in great detail. Highly recommended. So remember the challenge of the GoBots, the series, volume one, now available from the Warner Archive collection. So we'll go from GoBots to Go-Go Girls in the <laughs> 60s. And these two ladies, Raquel Welch and Sophia Loren, marvelous actresses, talented actresses, and also their beauty overwhelmed audiences all over the world for decades, both on the big screen and on television. But this is really the 1960s. Yeah. Um, Within the mid-60s, yes. you have Lady L from 1966, More right. Than a Miracle from 1967, and The Biggest Bundle of Them All from 1968. So let's talk about them in reverse order. Let's talk about The Biggest Bundle of Them All first. I lament the disappearance of this genre. The comedy the caper, caper comedy, yes. is, is one of my favorite kind of movies. It has procedural aspects of its humor. It has the highest 
they, they used to be a staple of summer entertainments, right. and no one well, touches them anymore. They, they've added the comedy a little bit into action movies. That's where you see it come, like, you know, yeah. Die Hard. But, but, you, but yeah, it's but, not... And, and then other action movies have the putting together of the team, right. but nobody does the light touch putting together the team to pull off a and, complicated caper. Now, this was... I it, can think of a movie that came out not too long ago that had a big budget for the studio that was a huge disaster... That was a caper comedy, and it just shows that it takes a different... Well, if you're thinking of the same one I'm thinking of, the problem with that is there was no real caper there. That's my point. <laughs> you really have to give a good story, and this one has an excellent story and gorgeous locations. And that's this was one of the uh, Italian co-productions? Yes. This it's, was a co-production with, with several entities. And, and a very interesting actor who's yeah. probably better known to American audiences for his directing. Vittorio De Sica. De Sica, who I had to study in my Italian film class. And little did you know that he made his bread and butter doing all these kind of character parts. That's how he was able to afford the filmmaking of yeah. his independent films. And, and, but he, and sort he's of the great. Italian Casavetti. He was great. And I also want to mention that Godfrey Cambridge is in this yes. movie. A wonderful comedic actor who died very, very young and is now... I would say largely forgotten, but he was a big star at the time. And in a way, the the train caper reminded me of another uh, Italian co-production, which we talked about a little earlier because it's on Instant uh, Five Man Army. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was more wacky than this Five Man Army. This could easily run on a drive-in double feature yeah. two years later with, with and, Five Man. And, yeah. and you would have lied. I mean, it would have made total sense. Uh, so, I'm sure MGM did that. So uh, <laughs> yes, they had to. Yeah, Robert Wagner leads a crew yes. of. Amateur criminal expatriates. Yes. They kidnap a mafia don thinking it's their ticket to the big time. This is the the Sika character who turns out to have no money at all. But he does know the professor, which is Edward G. Robinson, who has just one great caper he's always wanted to pull off. And there's a train and there's gold and there's Raquel Welch. And it's in lovely Panavision. All of these films are new 16 by 9 Panavision masters, which is why you haven't seen them on DVD before because – all that's existed for the last 20 years are the masters that you'd see on TV, which won't and, be appropriate for DVD. And unlike some other uh, Italian co-productions, this actually did take place in Italy. Right. <laughs> because it was about the mafia and about a, an international cast of very, very desperate people who probably never should have been mafia, become now, mafia. In the prior year, Omar Sharif coming off his... Uh, Leap into Superstardom, starring as Dr. Zhivago, co-starred with Sophia Loren in More Than a Miracle, made in 1967. And this one is very charming, I think. This is Italian filmmaking at its... Like, it's not wacky, but it's wacky. It's wacky. It is... This is is like an Italian folktale on screen with all the peculiarities and uniqueness of a real Italian folktale. That's true. Yeah, and let's just put it this way. When you start out in the beginning, you see it's sort of a medieval-y adventure. It takes place, you know, there's a little there's politics in it. But then when you see that there's, of course, a flying monk. As there are. Right, and it's taken as, yes, monks fly. Well, this one does. He's pretty holy. It just takes off and ends up with almost a reality show style competition for uh, princessness. I don't want to ruin it because that's kind of the no, best but part. I also think the thing that makes this film work so well is that there's really a great chemistry between Sophia Loren is... and Omar Sharif. We haven't really had a chance to talk about Sophia Loren on the podcast, I think, just to do a brief tangent on her because, mm. you know, because she took herself out of the game when she did to more or less be a mother, 
since then, she's sort of accrued the reputation of just being a bombshell. And a lot of people have forgotten what a remarkable actress she was and how hard she fought to be taken seriously as an actress and how great she was at it. Yeah. Having said that, this is one of her later roles. And before <laughs> and before she did this film, she won the Best Actress Oscar in 1961 for Two Women. And she was the first person to win an Oscar for a foreign language role, right? Right. Yes. So, I mean... And that's that, all there. That, that's that, that she, once she put that behind her, then no one questioned. And the fact that she was working... She would make English-language films. She would make Italian-language films. She has a flawless English accent. And um, she's really a remarkable person and um, was even taking on legendary status as a young woman. I've always been a a big fan of her work. I love her in so many movies. But this one is particularly delightful. And uh, she works in so many different pairings. And this Mm -hmm. pairing is, uh, you know, she's a tour de force. and, And you add the two to the mix and you get Italian style. Now, equally comparable in the chemistry on screen, the great Paul Newman, another Oscar winner, uh, Oscar winning Best Actor, who finally won the Oscar for The Color of Money in the 1980s, the year after he won a special Oscar after having been nominated so many times and not winning. Lady L is from the prime of his career, 1966, and he was doing all sorts of different kinds of films. He worked with Hitchcock in Torn Curtain. He had just made movies like HUD, and he would go on to make movies like Cool Hand Luke and then hit his probably biggest hit with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid by the end of the decade. But this is mid-60s Paul Newman in a costume comedy epic written and directed by Peter Ustinov. This is the sort of goofy Paul Newman. Yes. He's a wacky anarchist. I think he was definitely trying to stretch the kind of role so he wouldn't be pigeonholed into one kind of character. But, you know, and you, you, you put this together and then look towards the future with the kind of lighthearted yeah. characters that he uh, came to be known for in the late 60s and early 70s. This fits right into that. And this is one where Sophia Loren bookends this film as, a, as an old lady, which was... Um, it's, it's a rags to riches by way of bordello story. Yes. Uh, with and, flashbacks. And, and But there's also a, a love story at the heart of it. Steampunky uh, as yeah. well. Paul Newman is the wacky anarchist. And then... David Niven, of course, plays the suave aristocrat. Did David Niven ever not play suave? He always played suave, even when he was young, young, young. This movie, I think it's interesting to note that at the beginning and end, as you noted, you know, Sophia Loren is aged with makeup to be an elderly woman. Yeah. And in chronological years, she's probably now older than yes. that right. character and yet looks, looks decades younger looks much better than the makeup <laughs> yeah. that was sort of the yeah. the fascinating point and, and she makes quite an entrance I, this movie is 48 years old yeah. and uh, you certainly don't think of that when you're watching it it's, it's grand entertainment I do know this property was around MGM for quite a while before it got off the ground and I don't know its history of what took so long to get it made. It could have been possible, you know, uh, freedom of the screen to be a little bit more liberal because the screen was becoming more liberal towards the latter part. Right, because it was like a few of these films I was actually checking to see if they had been rated because this was right at the cusp of things changing. It's 66, you know, uh, because she came from a bordello. If it had been made maybe a few years later, it might have been steamier, but it might have been less wacky. But I think Lady L is charming and delightful and and highly recommend it. 
Now let's talk about the quartet of movies that we have, which are films that were available on DVD that went out of print, were hard to get, and now are easy to get by going to our website, warnerarchive.com, the first of which is an Oscar winner itself, The Sunshine Boys from 1975, starring Walter Matthau, George Burns, and Richard Benjamin, George Burns having won Best Supporting Actor Oscar for his performance, and it was his first motion picture role since Honolulu, made in 1939 at MGM. And he stepped into the role after his good friend Jack Benny, who had been cast in the role and whose silent makeup test is actually on the disc. Oh, cool. Um, Jack Benny passed away uh, rather suddenly, and they were about to start production, and they didn't know who to replace him with. And George Burns and Jack Benny both had the same manager. And Irving Fine said to MGM, George will do it. And George did it. And had a resurgence and a renaissance of his career Absolutely. bigger than he ever was. Yeah, it was, it was, it was really amazing. Like you know, First George, portion of his career. Yeah, I mean, George Burns, who had a successful stage career, and we'd seen him in supporting roles and films, and of course, in the 50s, Burns announced one of the finest sitcoms ever made. But all of a sudden, in 1975, George Burns was a superstar. Yep. This uh, play, it's a very interesting play in of itself because it is all about nostalgia. And now we are actually almost more distant from nowadays to when this was made as to when this was made looking back to the 20s and 30s that they were referencing. 39 years, which is really hard to believe. This disc has on it, a, as I said, the silent screen test with Walter Matthau and uh, Jack Benny. Then there's also another screen test. There's also a pilot for a television series that never went live. And then there's some uh, behind the scenes festivities celebrating uh, Richard Benjamin's birthday at an MGM junket. So there's a lot of great stuff on this disc, along with a commentary by none other than Richard Benjamin. And from a personal standpoint, I just saw this play at the taper with uh, Judd Hirsch and Danny DeVito, which was very interesting. So it was very interesting to see it this way, because, of course, this is like a snapshot of 70s New York as it existed at the time. That's like, right. Just nails it right there. It's fascinating just for that alone. Well, I love the opening shot of Times Square because, well, it's not actually Times Square. It's more like uh, yeah, yeah. further up near the TKTS booth because you see the Palace Theater before it had been renovated. Right. And there's a billboard that had been advertising Carol Channing as Lorelei that had been painted <laughs> over with white paint and uh. then uh, advertisement for the show Raisin. It, it's the Broadway area of my childhood that I remember oh. very well. And and then in the film it goes into uh, some of this, uh, you know, more Vitaphone material, you know, like the, that era, the early talking Well, era. the titles begin with actual Metrotone shorts that were right. MGM vaudeville shorts, many of which we've released. Right. I and recognize them. the audio, that MGM really knew how to cut corners on making this movie because <laughs> the audio of, that opens up the music, that opens up the movie, is Make Him Laugh. Right. And it's the orchestra track of Donald O'Connor's performance for Singing in the Rain oh. without Donald O'Connor's voice. Oh, that's funny. And if you listen very carefully, you can hear Donald O'Connor in the background. Way in the background. But back. it was only until I started working with the music recordings that I realized, oh my God, that's the orchestra track from the Singing in the Rain recording. That's so funny. But the film itself is a wonderful story about a vaudeville team that had parted acrimoniously. Mm-hmm. 
and reunite for a television special, or at least that's the goal. And we've talked about this recently because The Sunshine Boys is streaming now in high definition in yes. Warner Archive Instant. Yeah. So we'll be talking a little bit more about Warner Archive Instant it, later in the it, podcast. You know, as a fan of movie history and comedies and like, and we've been talking about the Vitaphones and stuff, we have retro retro here. And so it's definitely worth checking out if you haven't seen it. Now, Herbert Ross directed this film and he also directed the next film we're going to talk about, which was a very, very expensive production that surprised a lot of people and was not a financial success upon its initial release because... Audiences were expecting something different. Oh, my. I think what's really funny is... Which film? The, oh, yes. We are discussing Pennies from Heaven by Dennis Potter. 1981. I think one of the things that hindered this film is people were not prepared to accept the cerebral Steve mm-hmm. Martin that everyone totally accepts now. So to give this... Exactly. To give this context, Steve Martin was a huge star. He had been in The Jerk that thrust him into movie stardom. He had already been a star on television and stand-up and and records, comedy records. He had big hit comedy records. Memorized those things. And he was, you know, really at the top of his career, and he chose to do something daring and risky. This is based on, as Dan indicated, uh, Dennis Potter had created a miniseries for the BBC called Pennies from Heaven. Dennis Potter is probably best known... Here. For, here for The Singing Detective. If you're familiar with that, and by the time that came out, everybody loved that. Yeah. And that's pe- this Pennies from Heaven is exactly like that. Dennis Potter, definitely one of the most significant dramatists of the latter 20th century, and he was also somebody that really thrived in the television format because he played with mm-hmm. reality and genre and yes. song and dance and what went on in our the life of the mind versus our real lives. And it's all here in Pennies from Heaven, which is... On one level, a very dark and very depressing story about a door-to-door music sheet Uh, salesman who has dreams of a better life, but these dreams of a better life are all sort of culled from the big movie musicals of the day, and so you get these big movie musical numbers using the songs of the day. And they're all, with one or two exceptions, mouthed to commercial phonograph recordings from the 1930s by various performing artists. So it was exceptionally daring. Bernadette Peters is the leading lady. Bernadette Peters had been a big Broadway star in the 70s and continued to have huge stage successes in decades thereafter and still is uh, beautiful and successful in concert engagements and stage work wherever she goes. But she really was just starting to appear in movies and she and Steve Martin were a couple at the time and they had met during The Jerk, I believe. But to see Bernadette Peters in a movie where you don't get to hear her sing but she's mouthing to someone else was part of the conceptualization. Yes. And ultimately, most audiences were not ready for what this movie had to put out there, which is really a shame. They, they because came for like, my parents went thinking the jerk. Yeah, and so did a lot of people, that, the few that did show up, because it did not do well at the box office. But on this disc, which is now happily back in print, there is a forum that occurred at the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences where members of the creative team behind the movie and cast members talked about the film, I believe on its 20th anniversary, if I'm not Uh mistaken. And we're so fortunate to have that piece on the DVD because it really puts the film 
in context Great. and lets you see what real, I think, genius went into that film. It's, it's a great movie, and now audiences are more than primed to handle this yeah. kind of movie. Oh, yeah. yeah. You get it right away, and it's, it is interesting to see it in context because at the time this was a well, steamroller. And it's also like just how ahead of his time and out of the box Dennis Potter was. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Also, want, want to just call out two production numbers of note because the numbers are, in the film are so amazing, but Christopher Walken oh, has yeah. a... Uh, one scene where he plays basically a, a pimp, mm-hmm. if you will, and he does a, a striptease dance to Cole Porter's Let's Behave that is shocking to anyone who hasn't seen his Weapon of Choice yes. music video that followed two decades later. But he got his start as a teenager, as a Broadway chorus dancer, and uh, his dancing... I guess he's danced on Saturday Night Live a couple of the, times. This, this launched a, the internet, practically. This was the yeah. eye-opener for people who thought of Christopher yeah. Walken primarily from The Deer Hunter. Right. And this is four years later, and he's Not dancing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have the strangest thoughts when I'm driving. So, anyway, I highly, highly recommend both The Sunshine Boys and yeah. The Pennies from Heaven as a testament to the multiple talents of Herb Ross, who was really one of the most prolific and successful directors of his time. And he passed away a few years ago. And uh, these films are both a credit to his inestimable talents. The next film that we have is from the 1930s and is from a director who is renowned for greatness, and that is the great George Stevens, as Catherine Hepburn and Frederick Murray star in Alice Adams from 1935. Now, this Alice Adams is one of it's one of the films that people bring up when they're talking about Katherine Hepburn's career. Absolutely. There's so many roles that people append, like, signature or career right. high to Katherine Hepburn. It's just people need to remember she knocked one out of the park about every four years. And she completely dominates the first half of this film with her awkward teen. This is teen angst I mean, yeah. and, and, before and my so-called life. Yeah, and it's amazing because when you watch her performance and the, the context of, like, the dance may have changed or, like, how kids date or whatever, but her moments where she's sitting, standing there on the and sitting there on the dance floor just looking completely and utterly lost are so touching and there's this fantastic moment where she reaches for she's she doesn't know what to do with her hands and so she reaches for her compact and opens it up and at that moment i was like that's when i'd be reaching for my cell phone it's so exactly like my horrible experiences in life that i loved it thank you that's all those are the kind of moments you get when George Stevens is behind the camera. It's so incredibly right now. Now, Alice Adams is based on a, I think it won a Pulitzer, you can double check me, people, a novel by Booth Tarkington, who yeah. we've actually talked about in this. Ken Rod and Sam. Yeah, so it's a story of a girl who should be satisfied. Her family might yeah. not be in the best of shape, but they try to stay together, and some of them try to work, but she's ashamed, and she'll do anything to climb out of the social mess she feels she's in. Well, you know, and as as they say, a family that sticks together makes a glue factory together. Mm-hmm. You know, a very different kind of teen angst is on view in 1971's yeah. Summer of 42. And this film, like Summer of 42, really ignited a whole new teen angst genre for yeah. the 70s. I mean, this film yeah. was huge. This film was a huge success and had no real stars in it other than model Jennifer O'Neill, who gives a wonderful performance and... Uh, it is a timepiece, and what I love about this film, I can't think about this film without thinking about the music. 
Huh. Michel Legrand's score, and it is a memoir, I believe, uh-huh. of uh, Herman Rockauer. Am I pronouncing that his name sounds right? right? Yeah, Hermie. Uh, and he, his character of Hermie, and I remember I didn't see this movie when I was a kid because I was too young because it was rated R, uh. and I wasn't allowed to see it because I was far under seventeen. But I kind of gleaned from conversations that we're having at the dinner table between my <laughs> uncle and my parents. And kind of my uncle was that age in the 40s. Right. And he was talking about how realistic uh-huh. that movie was in terms of the, the sensibilities of the era and everything. I just think it's, it's a it, beautiful, tender story about a trio of boys that are spending a summer together in 1942. At the beach. At the beach. And they're in a, you know, the whole thing about adolescence is you're in this state of suspension between adulthood and childhood. But the summer of 1942, a generation of teenagers were in a state of super suspension because they were suspended between peace and war. And they didn't know if they were, you know, these, these teenagers were not quite old enough to fight in the war yet, but the whole thing was looming. And at the beginning, certainly, we weren't winning the war right away. Nobody knew what was going to happen. was gloomy and frightening and terrifying times for everybody. And the early 70s were a period of nostalgia and looking back at the 40s and the 30s in many different ways and then many works of art, film, television, and stage. But I think this was one of the most interesting because if you think about it, you have two years later, you have American Graffiti, where George Lucas is looking back only 11 years. Where were you in 62? And it seemed like a lifetime before. And it, it was over the cultural divide. Right. You're, and, you're you absolutely know. right. Jennifer O'Neill's, um, her husband is shipped off to war, and right. so she's also alone. And as you also touched upon in 71, this was when the draft was going on still, right. you know, and so kids were in the same state. It was immediately relatable. The whole thing about war and the, the pensive notion of what the ramifications of it were very much a part of it. Don't want to give away any plot points for those of you who haven't seen no. it, but this is a much beloved film. It was a huge success and it spawned a sequel called Class of 44, which is and has been available from the Warner Archive collection on DVD for many years. So if you want to find out what happened to these characters, buy Summer of 42 and Class of 44 and make it a double feature. So 86. Um, now it's time to talk about Warner Archive Instant. Yes. Our subscription video on demand service that you could try free for two weeks and you can view movies and great television programs on your PC, your Mac, or your iPad or your Roku device and on iPad and Roku or Roku stick, you can watch in 1080p HD. HD. And we're always adding new content all the time. And this week we're gonna talk about our new picks for Warner Archive Instant, which you can find at warnerarchiveinstant.com. I should mention that. Absolutely. So gentlemen, your picks please. Dan. Just because I think it goes well with the GoBots. Absolutely. (laughs) I picked Man from Atlantis. Yes. In a stunning new high definite, well, I shouldn't say new, but available to be seen in its high definition transfer. Absolutely. In high definition. Looks amazing. Man from Atlantis, for, you know, the one or two of you who don't know, was a uh, 
superhero sci-fi show from the mm-hmm. mid-70s starring a young Patrick Duffy. There was a series of TV movies and then a TV series. Now the TV series ended, which was probably good for Patrick Duffy because he immediately transitioned into a show called Dallas, which was on for a short time. But Never still Atlantis, on. Yes. <laughs> and he's still on with Patrick Duffy. Yeah. We, we brought Mad from Atlantis out as a Warner Archive DVD shortly after he launched our initiative here. Right. And it did so well that we went back and remastered not only the original TV movie, but the whole series of 13 episodes and the four TV movies that preceded the series. And those high-definition masters that we created for the DVDs are now streaming in HD on Warner Archive Instant. And I got to say, they look amazing. This is extra, extra special because, you know, with HD and TV from this time, literally nobody has seen it this good. It did not exist, except maybe if you were in a lab and projecting it on the wall or something. I mean, you just didn't see it this way. No, it looks great. The colors pop. Everything's highly defined. You see even more of just, especially in those TV movies, Mm -hmm. how far they went to make his underwater scenes as realistic as they could. And then having seen him speak at the Paley Center, realizing how torturous they were to shoot. Yeah. And you can also check out our podcast from 2011 when Patrick Duffy did an interview with Warner Archive Collection to talk about the release of the DVDs when we put them out. But now you can watch it in HD on Warner Archive Instant, and that is something to celebrate. Matthew, your pick, please. Well, I I didn't watch this underwater, but I thought, you know, Raquel Welch, Raquel Welch, because I saw Flare Up again from (laughs) 1969. We released this earlier on DVD, but this is one where she's a go-go dancer in... The go-go dancer. Yeah, she is the go-go dancer in, you know, it's a trip going back to 1969 Los Angeles and seeing all these, you know, strip clubs and places she'd go and she uh, becomes involved in, um, you know, crime Model airplanes. And model airplanes. And probably one of my all-time favorite moments when she uh, is running away from somebody, drives up Vermont, which is now you know the trendy area of Los Feliz, finds herself in the abandoned zoo. But I think that the scene might have not played so well so that the producers later added animal noises, even though the sign said it was an abandoned zoo. Matt's fondness for abandoned zoos I doesn't love. take away from the greatness of Flare Up. And, and it looks fantastic. And there is indeed an extended Raquel Welch go-go dance oh, yeah, sequence. Yeah, yeah. She yeah, gets I, a full I, number. I'm sorry. I talked about the abandoned zoo. I forgot about the, there are strip clubs. There is Raquel Welch. One, of the, go-go one of the important things well, that we've done at Warner Archive is that we have been responsible for remastering literally hundreds of feature films yeah. and hundreds of hours of television and a lot of these films and television shows, the elements haven't been touched in decades. And the improvements that can be brought to them when we remaster them are significant. And Dan talked about Man from Atlantis, HD, because we remastered it. Right. Matt talked about Flare Up HD because we remastered it. The film I'm going to talk about is also HD because we remastered it. And it is a true bonafide classic. Lana Turner and Van Heflin and Donna Reed are among the many stars in MGM's epic tale, Green Dolphin Street from oh, 1947. Yeah. And I, I love this movie. I won't deny that I'm, I'm fond of it because 
it has everything you could possibly want in a movie, and it has uh, sisters vying for the love of the same man. It has secrets. It has lies. It has betrayals. It has earthquakes. Thank you. That's where it I'm It has going. special effects, courtesy of the MGM Special Effects Department. It's got a great score by Bronislaw Caper, and most impressively, our new remaster looks amazing in HD. And so I, I heartily have to call out Green Dolphin Street is the address you'll want to have. Ooh, nice. We wanted to, we talked about this one earlier, I believe, when, when it was first uh, released to DVD, or was that before the podcast? Because I remember talking to you about the origin story of where they got Well, the, 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 this was the first winner of what yeah. was to be an annual novel writing contest that MGM would hold yeah. where people could submit novels to MGM and win a rather substantial cash prize right. in exchange for the film rights to their novel. So, because when you said it had everything, it was like they wrote it to have everything. Well, Elizabeth Googe, if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, it's G-O-U-D-G-E, I believe. Elizabeth Googe's novel was the first in the contest, and then they had another contest the following year, and then they suspended the contest. Right. And I think that had to do a lot with the change of management at MGM at the time. But the other film to win the award wasn't made until a decade later, and that's Rain Tree County. Oh, that's, that's so well, they got winners each time. Yeah, we should do that, and like, but have them send us graphic novels so we can read them more quickly. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, Green Dolphin Street, Flare Up, Man from Atlantis, yeah. hundreds of hours of television programming and hundreds of films are available for streaming on demand as when you're a member of Warner Archive Instant. And if you're not a member of Warner Archive Instant, you're not a movie lover. So get your free trial today if you have not already signed up. Matt, do we have letters? We do have one letter today. And Shannon from Garden Grove, California, sent her letter or missive to Warner Archive Collection B160-8, 3400 Riverside Drive, Burbank, California, 91522. We only accept letters on paper sent through the post office, so don't send us your emails. And no. don't send the letter on papyrus because no. it has a papyrus fetish. And, and also, we do not accept carrier pigeon. That's Someone true. was asking. Okay, I'm opening up the letter for the very first time, and oh, this is on, this is interesting. Is it on Oak Tag? Oh, there is, she has included a very large self-addressed stamped envelope. I'm going to hand this to Dan because Dan loves being a pen pal. Ah, we have some uh, <laughs> Disneyland Frontierland stationery. Hi guys, I just started listening to your podcast, and I must tell you I love your enthusiasm for all the great classic films out there. Since I just started, I've got a lot to catch up on, but I love the old radio shows you include, like Whistling and Dixie and Rosalind Russell and Roughly Speaking. What a gem. I'm also a huge fan of Warner Brothers films, especially some of the gangster pictures from the 1930s. Bogey, Cagney, and Garfield are three of my favorite actors of all time. That being said, there's so much I would love to ask you about, but I'll try and narrow it down. Smiley face. You've already released a few of Cagney's earlier films, but I'm wondering if you will continue to release more. Or all the rest? I would love to be able to get copies of Boy Meets Girl and The Irish in Us. Hope these will be future releases. I love what everyone at Warner Archive does. Thanks for your knowledge and enthusiasm. Shannon. P.S. 
I also want to say I loved hearing your interviews with Peter Ford. This Frontierland stationery is really reminding me of how much I love 310 to Yuma. Let's say both are upcoming. And the reason why uh, you haven't been able to get Boy Meets Girl or The Irish in us yet is because the current masters we hold are not DVD worthy and we need to make them DVD worthy. So Boy Meets Girl is going to be remastered shortly as we have received new film elements made from the nitrate camera negative, which we brought in from the Library of Congress, which is where we store a lot of our original camera negatives. Explosive. That's right. So it's an explosive (laughs) movie with Cagney and Pat O'Brien. And uh, the Irish in us has Cagney and Olivia de Havilland. So that's one we plan to remaster as well. And uh, we have a lot more Cagney in store, so stay tuned. And we thank you for that letter. Yeah, well, that's it. That wraps it up for this week, but we'll be back next week with another podcast with all the exciting additions to the Warner Archive collection. Until then, I'm George Feltenstein. I'm D.W. Ferranti, and I think we should hear from Scooter. Oh, okay. I'm Scooter. Bye. That sounded like Baby Pac-Man on Access. Oh, it's the same voice. It's the, and I also the and a Smurf and uh, a lot of other Th- That's a well-carrying trade secret. Yeah. Thanks for listening. <laughs>